Welcome to Transatlantic Takeaway by Common Ground Berlin and the German Marshall Fund of the United States. In our shows, we explore the impact of key international developments on the European Union and the United States. I'm your host, Soraya Sirhadi Nelson. And I'm your host, Rachel Tausenfreund. Today, we're going to talk about two new digital policies that are in the process of being passed by the European Union. They're the most far-reaching laws affecting big tech companies since 2018, when the bloc imposed online privacy protection. Following a European Parliament vote last month on the first of the new policies, European Commissioner for Competition, Margareta Vestaya, spoke with journalists. A fair marketplace is part of every democracy. And the steps that we took... Well, they are huge steps in terms of securing every business that also the digital marketplace is fair for the benefit of every consumer. The EU goal is to stop American tech giants from squashing the competition and forcing them to police their platforms more aggressively for illegal content. But are the two new acts enough? To dissect these complex regulations, we're joined in the Berlin studio by Konstanz Kochelowski, the founder and managing director at Candid Public Affairs, which helps tech companies navigate Berlin's regulatory environment, and Travis Todd, the co-founder of Silicon Alley, which is a group for tech startups and enthusiasts here in Germany's capital. And joining us via Zoom in Paris is Julia Trehu, who is program manager and fellow with the Digital Innovation and Democracy Initiative. Welcome to you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Let's start with Julia. Can you explain these twin laws to us? Sure. So the Digital Services Act and Digital Markets Act were presented as draft legislation in December 2020. The goal is creating a digital environment with more openness and pluralism in contrast to one currently dominated by big tech, which can abuse its market power to stifle competition. And the DMA does so by targeting what it calls gatekeepers. And this can be search engines, intermediation services like app stores, social networks, YouTube, WhatsApp, cloud services. Gatekeepers are identified as those over a certain threshold of turnover in the EU or certain number of users, which means companies like Meta, Apple, Google, Microsoft, Salesforce, Booking.com would be affected. And the DMA sets out rules for these gatekeepers. They won't be able to favor their own content over similar third-party content, or use data collected from third-party sellers to offer competing products, and they need to offer choice for search engines, virtual assistants, browsers. Uh, The Digital Services Act, on the other hand, is a law to update the e-commerce directive from 2000. And the goal is to harmonize the process across EU member states and create one set of rules regarding illegal content on platforms, including how users notify platforms about illegal content and the actions that the platforms must then take. And the obligations in the DSA apply to all online intermediaries, but what's especially important are those for what are called very large online platforms, which have over 45 million monthly users in the EU. And these large platforms have new due diligence obligations under the DSA and will have to carry out risk assessments, basically assessing the different societal risks that could be caused or exacerbated by their products or design. So what's important is that instead of individualized debates over individual pieces of content, the DSA takes a more systematic approach. And it also creates different transparency requirements uh, for the public, for regulators, for vetted researchers, so that we can really get a look into these black boxes of content moderation and advertising on the platforms. 
What is it going to mean practically, though? I mean, for example, the Privacy Act, or you know, we'll talk more about that later, that went into effect in 2018, basically means that we're doing a lot more clicking, that we're approving, you know, that we're here in the EU and we approve of this, you know, so you're doing a lot more clicking and saying yes to this, yes to that. Is it going to be that sort of thing? Or what sort of things are people going to see, practically speaking? So the transparency requirements, especially in the DSA, will be really helpful in allowing a better understanding of what's really going on under the hood of these platforms. So we can address the larger identified problems like disinformation. And we really don't know how these content moderation or algorithmic decisions are made. And so the data that will be generated for researchers especially will allow more targeted understanding of the problem. And the DSA also lays out redress mechanisms for its users uh, who will be able to request information about why content was removed Okay, and Constance, what about the timeline on these two different acts? Yeah, we really should think about these as two separate policies at this point. Of course, they cover uh, big technology companies, but they are very, very different. Um, The Digital Markets Act is now essentially complete. It has been agreed by all bodies of the European Union. Um, And now there are formalities that still need to take place. The Digital Services Act is not entirely finished yet. So there's a big um, meeting, uh, especially between council members and parliament that should be taking place at the end of April. Uh, We should have more answers about whether, you know, their decisions are final or they really do need more discussions in order to make final decisions. And one thing that's very much up in the air for that meeting is how users are defined, for instance. So Julia mentioned there's a threshold of how many average monthly users um, a platform has, how those users are counted will still be decided, whether targeted advertising is banned for minors um, is still a little bit up in the air, but is likely to come. So that means platforms need to reorganize how they're gauging how old users are and at the same time, you know, really figuring out we've been offering targeted advertising to our TikTok users or to our Instagram users. Now we need to offer almost an entirely different platform to some of those users. So uh, that will certainly be a task for platforms. So Travis, we just heard that the Digital Marketing Act is the first one that's going to take effect. And in fact, EU officials have been sort of bragging about how quickly they managed to wrap this up. How confident are you that it's going to deliver on what they're saying it's promising? Yeah, um, I always kind of have a, a gut reaction to these big sweeping legislations that are, you know, targeting uh, especially American technology companies because I think kind of in the rush to regulate there's kind of this tunnel vision on we have to punish these big technology companies and often that's at the detriment to small companies and startups and that's always my my reaction is this spray and pray approach is kind of dangerous for for innovation. And now there are, of course, there's limits to who is a gatekeeper under the Digital Markets Act. But I think the risk there is it also disincentivizes wannabe gatekeepers. You know, companies that are rising stars within the EU, they may go, oh, maybe we don't actually want to get this big and get this powerful. And then that's actually kind of doing the opposite of what the law was intended to do, which was ensuring competition. So I think it's really hard to say, and I think um, it's really hard to look down the pipeline. I mean, we looked at GDPR, and it looked like a great idea. But then, as um, Soraya mentioned, like it basically resulted in the consumer a lot of extra clicking and annoying pop-ups. So I'm pretty skeptical about the, the ability for the, the Digital Marks Act to actually do what the legislators are hoping to. 
And you mentioned it sort of in the beginning of your answer, right? You're not alone with your skepticism. And some of the people or some of the companies like Threema, which is a messaging alternative to WhatsApp, who are a lot smaller, they're actually worried that this uh, legislation is going to be worse for them than it is for the big ones. Can you explain? Yeah, I think that that comes from this um, topic of interoperability, which is in theory a really great thing, Um, interoperability and portability. That's something I think we can all agree we'd love to be able to take our data from one place to the other. But, you know, the theory is much different than the actual implementation. What does that actually mean, interoperability and portability? Legislating and saying that everything has to be interoperable and portable is beneficial to the bigger players because they have the money and resources to create that interoperability, those frameworks and things like that. So at the end of the day, you're going to be even more reliant on the big players to use their interoperability platforms and services and things like that. So it's a justifiable concern. Constance, are there loopholes that are going to allow big tech companies to get around the law? The European Commission, the Council, the European Parliament really did when it comes to the DMA. I think all they could to ensure that loopholes do not exist for uh, gatekeepers. Um, Reason being, you know, they knew that if there are loopholes, they will do everything they can in order to get around those. One thing that the institutions tried to do is really broaden the scope of the obligations and the way that these gatekeepers are defined so that, you know, As uh, innovations occur five years down the line, more than that, 10 years down the line, when business models change, those are still a part of the scope of the DMA. So I think that's one of the most important aspects to prevent some of these loopholes is that it's essentially technology agnostic. Um, One focus that the council had and the European Parliament had, for instance, is that voice recognition, for instance, which has become sort of a new gatekeeper, um, whether we think about Siri or Alexa, uh, the different tools that we use to then reach digital services, um, that those certainly are in the scope. They're thinking about um, interfaces like smart TVs and um, that those uh, are in scope. Um, There was certainly debate about whether some of these technologies are included or not, and I think that's where the loophole will come in. I think implementation and how the European Commission, especially, that's now responsible for enforcing this, interprets some of these technologies that will be fundamental to whether or not uh, loopholes do exist. Um, Are the penalties stiff enough to make a difference? So the penalties are uh, 10%, uh, for instance, of a company's global turnover in the last year and can go up to 20%, which, of course, is substantial. Um, The reason that the penalty is so stiff, I think, is because we're seeing some of the competition cases so that weren't based on regulation, but that were really based on antitrust uh, cases. We were seeing some of the biggest penalties or fines, for instance, after some of these cases. And still, we didn't see changes in behavior as a result of those cases. So that's why the commission really said we need to start with big fines um, and see where to go from here. I will say I'm a little bit skeptical. So I think that in order for um, dominant tech companies really, really to change their behavior, they need to feel the impact of the penalties on that behavior. And I don't know that even 10% of annual turnover will do that to the GAFAM companies that we're talking about. 
Just to add to what Constance is saying, um, a major question hanging over enforcement, especially for the DMA, is the question of personnel. And there's a real need for recruitment. And for now, those spots haven't been filled. Uh, the commission has about 80 staffers devoted to enforcing the DMA, but some estimates say that up to 600 people will be required. And um, it was reported that the European Council chief economist said the first few years, the commission might be shorthanded because of budgetary constraints. So it's important to keep an eye on the resources that will be allocated to enforcing as well. Good point, Julia. So, uh, Julia, targeted ads. So, you know, when you look at shoes and then for the next three days, you're constantly getting served ads of shoes seems to be how the economy online works. Are either of these acts going to change that, for example? Am I going to stop seeing shoes all the time? (laughs) One can only hope. <laughs> One can only hope. <laughs> My bank account hopes. So the goal of the DMA and the DSA are basically to increase transparency around targeted advertising, not to ban them per se. Um, and the transparency requirements are meant to foster competition by increasing price transparency and ad performance metrics, which can be more for the benefit of publishers and advertisers than consumers. But users will also be able to request information about who's behind an ad and the criteria used to display it. And then with transparency requirements for researchers, the idea is external entities will be able to study and understand the impact of these practices. And as Constance was saying, there's discussion about a ban on targeted advertising for minors. And in the case the platform is in doubt about whether a user is a minor or not, the approach would be the more protective one, which means that the ban Uh, on targeted ads would be the default unless the platform is sure the user is not a minor. So those negotiations are currently underway, but I would say the main focus is more on promoting transparency than regulating online advertising per se, which means that that face cream you clicked on once may continue to follow you a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) So um, Travis, what about app stores? Is this going to mean that the Apple App Store has to offer everybody's apps or do they still have control? I'm not too well versed on the exact kind of uh, limitations in the the law there. But I would say that one of the goals is to open up the App Store and especially look at uh, self-preference. This is, again, to separate these two. This is on the Digital Markets Act. And self-preference is the ability for when you click on your ad for shoes um, to see the Amazon branded shoes at the top or the Apple branded shoe app at the top of the, the search results. And I think we can all appreciate that it would be more fair if platforms didn't give preference to their own products. But it's a great idea in theory, but how do you actually implement it correctly? So for example, this would also limit the ability for you to have Google search results in Google Maps which even trying to get a corona test before coming to this studio, I can vouch for was super helpful for me to put into Google Maps corona test in Berlin. And so I think it can also lead to a a worse customer experience. And so trying to find the balance there of how do we open up these platforms to ensure um, competition, but still give a great user experience that the consumer ultimately wants um, is a really tough balancing act. And I don't know if that can be accomplished through legislation. Julia, I have a question for you. Do you think this law will affect only companies or also countries that stifle competition or ban platforms that they don't like? So these pieces of legislation aim to harmonize national rules across the EU, but they're focused on companies and consumers, not countries per se. Um, I do think we can look at the way that the 
EU really hopes to set standards for digital legislation worldwide and take advantage of what's been called the Brussels effect, which is the way that multinational companies often adopt EU standards as their own worldwide. So I think we can say that the decisions imposed on platforms in the EU would have an effect on their operations in the rest of the world. But the goal of the legislation is more on companies and, and consumers. We're going to take a short break. And when we return, we'll talk more about the Digital Marketing Act and the Digital Services Act, which is the second of the laws the EU is adopting that could change the way the world deals with online information. Stay tuned. Democracy. I'm Rachel Tausenfreund, one of the hosts of the German Marshall Fund's podcast, Out of Order. Join our conversations with leaders and experts on what the dark side of tech does to democracy, how the pandemic shapes geopolitics, and other topics of global order and disorder. You can find our episodes and miniseries at gmfus.org or wherever you find your podcasts. We are the German Marshall Fund of the United States, strengthening transatlantic cooperation since 1972. This is Abby, presenter and co-creator of Berlin Briefing. Do you find yourself having trouble understanding the news of the Hauptstadt, usually presented in German? If so, Berlin Briefing can help. We curate local top stories and present them in an 8-10 to minute podcast in English every Monday through Friday. You can find us at berlinbriefing.de or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Transatlantic Takeaway. I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson of Common Ground Berlin, and we are talking about the EU's clampdown on tech giants and others when it comes to the internet. And I'm Rachel Tausenfreund of the German Marshall Fund. We're joined by Constance Kuchelowski of Candid Public Affairs, Travis Todd of Silicon Alley, and Julia Trehu of GMF's Digital Innovation and Democracy Initiative. Travis, we talked about the messaging platforms earlier, and this, I think, is supposed to happen already in October. Um, yeah, from what I understand, the Digital Markets Act um, will be voted on or finalized this year, but probably will take around six months to actually start implementation. So we may see the impacts of this in maybe a year. And that will mean that, you know, if I'm on Threema and you're on WhatsApp, probably it's the reverse, we can start messaging each other. Does anybody have an idea of what that's going to look like exactly? Again, it's really hard to tell how these things will be implemented. Um, what will be mandated is there must be interoperability and transportability. What that means in practicality is kind of up to the platforms and, and the individual countries, I believe, as well. Um, I'm sure my policy experts can correct me on, on that. But um, I think what's going to be more likely is I can take my WhatsApp chat, download the data, bring it over to Threema, see my chats from WhatsApp in Threema and so forth. I think it's going to be more like that, me being able to kind of take control of my data and transport it and move it somewhere else rather than cross-platform communication. In other words, rather than having a conversation with someone who happens to be on Telegram uh, or that sort of thing. Interesting. Yeah. So what about you're, you know, in the sort of tech startup scene? Is there anyone who's 
excited about the opportunities of working on this interoperability, or is is it more a sort of fear of this stifling and making everything harder? Yeah, that's actually an anecdote I wanted to bring up. I I met a company last year that was building a business purely around this. They were trying to build a business to allow you to take your data off of Spotify and move it to Tidal or move it to Google Play or move it to Apple Music. And their whole theory was um, giving control of the data of the user to the user to make it interoperable. Now, the problem with this act, as we mentioned earlier, is if Google, or let's keep using the music um, analogy, if Spotify is mandated to do that, they've actually destroyed this young startup's business because they've actually just created the interoperability um, functionality within Spotify. So, Constance, do you expect that there's going to be a proliferation of new messaging platforms or what's going to happen as a result of this? I don't think it's realistic that as a result, uh, there are going to be tons of new messaging apps. I think one opportunity that does exist is really in uh, the tech aspect that we are now, you know, we have this big question mark on. So the way I understand the interoperability that's being forced and it's solely of targeting messaging services, right, is that services like WhatsApp, so those that are deemed dominant and that are gatekeepers, they will be forced to offer the interoperability with other smaller services. And so those smaller services, including, stick with the example, Threema, can choose whether or not they take part in this interoperability. And then there will be services that pop up that really are um, these new sort of interoperability technologies that create an interface where those services meet. And I think that's where there's a huge space for innovation. The question really is, you know, are companies like Threema, I've heard uh, a statement that Threema specifically is not uh, as interested in the operability, but I think that's where it comes to business models. So many of the messaging services have been created in order to give us an alternative to these bigger um, messaging services. I'll stick with WhatsApp. And so if the sort of the novelty of this is different from WhatsApp, this provides me different privacy standards, this is a different crowd I'm communicating with, to be honest, right? With the My Threema people are different from my WhatsApp or Telegram people, essentially. And so uh, that kind of novelty disappears from a threema. And then the question is, you know, why not just go with WhatsApp? And I think that's what we really need to avoid when offering interoperability. Uh, so, Julia, you want to add something? So on this question of interoperability, which is really one of the most debated parts of the DMA, as Constance was saying, it requires some technical work to make different apps work together. But it also means that the apps need to not put end users at risk by undermining encryption or enabling spam or phishing. And so opponents claim that it would be impossible to implement in a user-friendly way and without negatively impacting privacy. Uh, but what this might actually look like in practice is that if encryption needs to be broken, there needs to be transparency so that users can make an informed decision. So if you try to send a message from service A, which is encrypted to service B, which isn't, a little warning would pop up saying that your message is leaving an encrypted service. And in some cases, users might find that an acceptable trade-off. For example, on WhatsApp, if you communicate with a business account, there's already a little warning box that pops up. So this could really change the user experience. And as an added point, this would be more difficult to scale in a US context, given that Americans generally have a higher use of SMS rather than uh, encrypted messaging apps like Signal or WhatsApp, which are more popular in Europe. 
Julia, let's talk more now about the second new law, the Digital Services Act. It's supposed to force social media companies like Meta, which owns Facebook and Instagram, to police their platforms more aggressively. So let's take the example of the Russian war in Ukraine right now. How is this going to affect what people in the EU can read or see about the war? Okay, so the e-commerce directive, um, which has governed digital services in the EU since 2000, already had in place a liability regime for platforms and the content on their platforms. And they, they have no general obligation to monitor their platforms for legal content, but they're governed by notice and action mechanism, which means that once they're informed about illegal content, they need to take action or they're liable. And this doesn't change with the DSA. The DSA is an update to the e-commerce directive. It doesn't affect this liability regime. Um, But the DSA will require platforms to carry out these systemic risk assessments which then can be checked by auditors and hate speech or misinformation, including misinformation about the war are part of this concept of systemic societal risks. So what the DSA will actually allow us to see with these different levels of transparency requirements, according to regulators or to the public and users or to vetted researchers is how the platforms are policing uh, the content in the first place and how their content moderation decisions are made and how the algorithmic amplification shapes what we see. So we will have a better understanding of why certain pieces of content are showing up in certain orders on feeds, uh, for example, about uh, about the war. So then are the penalties going to be more? Is this going to speed it up? Or are we basically going to see the same sort of approach to misinformation or hate speech? And I can throw this to Travis. Yeah, from what I understand, um, the intermediary liability, which is what Julia was talking about, of the platforms not being um, liable for the content that's on the uh, platform until they're made aware of it, is staying, which I think is good because I think, especially for startups, that puts a huge monitoring uh, obligation on them, which, frankly, they just can't afford. So I don't think much is going to change with the DSA in that regard. But again, it is still very much under debate and things may change going forward. I think one thing that's really important to add in respect to the Digital Services Act is that it does not regulate disinformation. It really targets, and Julia and Travis already said this, illegal content. And the whole sort of realm of disinformation is now covered by saying, you know, very large online platforms, Julia mentioned that in the intro as well, those platforms exclusively are responsible for and putting in place mechanisms about how they self-regulate, essentially, when it comes to disinformation. Um, And so there are no sort of set standards for disinformation. I don't know that we've seen those anywhere globally. And I think that's a challenge that will continue despite the Digital Services Act. Um, It's something that I believe will likely see regulation on in the future. That's kind of more targeted um, because disinformation, we all know, is a huge uh, problem, not just for us as users personally, but really the effect that it's having on democracy and on geopolitics even, we know now, is so large that there will be action to come in the future. Uh, But we should know, you know, when we're talking about what platforms are now forced to do or are continue to be liable for it, we're really talking about illegal content and should be cognizant of the fact that illegal content is defined differently across the European Union still, right? Where we're sitting in Berlin, there are different definitions for what is illegal to say than 
is the case in uh, France or in the Czech Republic. So with what you're saying about the Digital Services Act and, and the limitations to it, Thierry Breton of the European Commission said recently something like, this will end the so-called Wild West of the information space. But it doesn't sound like it's really going to do that. Yeah, I think that statement fits very well, actually, to the Digital Markets Act, right? What we were talking about before, because it really does, it creates norms that didn't exist, I believe, unfortunately, before in uh, the digital economy. When it comes to the Digital Services Act and um, its regulation of content, it's really content moderation, right? I don't think that we'll immediately see a change in the way that online platforms, the largest, the VLOPs, they call them, or any sort of platform that does content moderation, right? So one of the big debates, too, was news. Um, Are uh, news publishers essentially exempt from some of these rules? There we're talking even about sort of comment sections. Do there need to be notice and action sections for the comments on a news site? And One thing that has been talked about often is sort of because there's this strong liability, will companies be forced to or encouraged to overblock content? I think for small companies for whom this is really resource intensive, that might be the case. Um, And so that's a little bit of a danger. And that's why people have said, and I I really appreciate this quote, the um, head of global policy at Twitter, Sinead McSweeney, she said in an event recently that because there's this focus on the biggest and their behavior and the harm that they cause, efforts to tackle them means that that's all we're going to be left with. And I think that's sort of the challenge that we're seeing. Maybe the DSA is a little bit short of impact on us as consumers and pretty big um, when it comes to impact on innovation. Um, and what about globally, right? So the GDPR, which was the EU's standard uh, privacy standard setting, in the end became a bit of a global standard because companies wanted to compete here. They had to meet it. And if they're meeting it anyway, they can meet it everywhere. Do we expect a similar kind of global effect of both or either of these laws? Sure. I would say it, it may not be the most satisfying answer, but on one hand, it's a little too soon to tell, and a lot will depend on the details, um, especially with the DMA. We're going to have the draft text at the end of the month with more specifics, and then how willing uh, legislators are to enforce it according to the spirit of the law and the resources that they give to enforcement, as I was saying. So we can really only know the effect once it goes into law and is enforced, and then the potential challenges in court, especially from gatekeeper firms. And if we look at the GDPR, for example, uh, there were debates about how the data protection authorities in Luxembourg and Ireland, where many of these companies are located, uh, lacked the resources to pursue investigations. Um, It was reported that for the DMA, there will be a 0.1% annual net income fee that will cover the costs of monitoring compliance for the very large platforms. And so I think that The success of this law or the way that it's enforced in Europe, at least, will then have an effect on how it's translated to the rest of the world. That's our show for today. Joining us online was Julia Trehu of the Digital Innovation and Democracy Initiative. And joining us in the studio was Constance Kuhlowski of Candid Public Affairs and Travis Todd of Silicon Alley. Thank you all for your time today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. 
I'm your host, Rachel Tausenfreund. And I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. Common Ground senior producer is Dina El Sayed. Our social media editor is Stefano Montali, and our intern is Abigail Meginson. Common Ground is made possible through a grant administered by the German Ministry for Economic Affairs and Energy. Our partners are the German Marshall Fund of the United States and Goethe Institute. All Common Ground and GMF's Out of Order episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to also check out our respective podcast websites, commongroundberlin.com and gmfus.org.